Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 116. Before we get to this week's episode and this week's guest, just wanted to thank everyone again for following along on social media, sharing this podcast with your friends. You know, I've been having some incredible phone conversations with people that love the Back of the Range. One of my all-time favorite messages came through earlier this week from a mom in Texas who listens to the back of the range while she's walking. She tells all of her junior golf parent friends all about the back of the range golf podcast. Just super cool stories like that make this whole thing worthwhile and fun. So thanks for that message earlier this week. Little housekeeping news to share with you. Last year, I did a Road to Hoylake series before the Walker Cup, where I highlighted 16 guys that were vying for a spot on the U.S. team. Had a lot of fun doing that getting to know a lot of the great collegiate stars in the game today. Boy, it was a blast being at Hoy Lake. Having already spoken to the entire team, that made things that much better. In the next couple weeks, I will launch the road to Augusta. There are six amateurs in the field at the Masters. I will introduce you to all of them. From the U.S. Amateur Champion, Andy Ogletree, to the Asia-Pacific Amateur Champion, Yushin Lin, you will get to know them all a little bit better, and that'll get us a little bit more excited for the Masters and for you to root for these amateurs as they compete at Augusta National. So keep an eye out. I will promote it heavily on our social media channels. It'll probably start in early March. Speaking of social media, you know the drill. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, on Instagram. Every episode's available on our website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. To make it easy, go to thebackoftherange.com. Little mojo update. Boy, congrats to Pepperdine Men's Golf. Look out for these guys in the spring. Back-to-back team victories and individual victories. Absolutely incredible. Congrats to William Mao, who picked up his first career victory at the Amer Ari Invitational in Hawaii. He shot 64 in the final round to get into a playoff, won it in extra holes. William Mao was a guest during that Road to Hoylake series. If you haven't caught that episode, go check it out. First guest in the history of this podcast to grow up on an egg farm. Absolutely incredible story. And remember, Sahith Thigala won that previous tournament when he donned the Kobe jersey on the final hole. He was episode 101. Go get caught up on these episodes. Learn more about these guys. Texas finished runner-up in this tournament. Those guys are playing well. Oklahoma State did well. It's going to be an awesome spring, and I can't wait to get out to some of these tournaments in person. Let's get started with this week's episode because I feel that I might need a little more runway to introduce this guest. Our guest this week is Will Leach, and he is not a golfer. Now, he will not argue that fact with me whatsoever, so don't feel that I'm picking on him. When I say he's not a golfer, I don't mean that he's a hacker but, you know, loves the game. I'm telling you, he doesn't play golf. So why is he on the Back of the Range Golf Podcast? Well, that's a very good question. You know, I first learned about Will about 15 years ago when I came across this website called Deadspin. You see, before there was social media and memes and TikTok and Snapchat, there were blogs. And Deadspin was the most widely read sports blog in the country. Will was the founder of Deadspin. Again, why is he on here? Well, last year, Golf Magazine approached him to write about golf, and that turned into a little experiment. How would a non-golfer fare after spending a year with one of the top instructors in the state of Georgia? Will, of course, lives in Athens, Georgia. Well, we spoke about his journey in the game. We spoke about sports and golf movies and Joe Buck and why we hate certain commentators and his thoughts on just being a sports fan. And more importantly, why is it completely pointless and simultaneously such an important part of our daily existence? I had a great conversation with Will. He's written several books. He's hosted several podcasts, and he's just an interesting sports guy. So this might be a little bit of a palate cleanser, so to speak. This will get us recharged thinking about how we view golf, how we view our golf fandom, so to speak. I hope you find our conversation as entertaining as I did. So let's get started. Will, why why are you here at the back of the range? I am glad 
to be able to come on and finally educate your listeners about golf. It's time to listen to a true expert in this field who understands the game in both its macro and micro forms and can package it and hand it to your listeners the way that it needs to be packaged and handled. All right. I don't know where to go with that, but let's see if we can move forward. <laughs> I know. I have no idea. I'm just being silly. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come on. No, no, that's great. So since you are just a renowned expert in the game of golf and its histories and traditions <laughs> and its players, yep. what is your current handicap that you're carrying, Will? Handicap. That's um, that's like the number of strokes that you're – it's whatever it is. It's, uh, you know, you know how, uh, how uh, um, when, they, when they teach you – uh, in, in, in early biology, uh, scientific notation, yes. or it's like, like 0.02 times 10 to the 23rd. Yes. Um, that my handicap is so bad. It requires that number of digits to be put in that sort of format. Okay. So really we've, we've uncovered a little bit of truth here is that you really don't know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to golf. So what? Nope. Okay, perfect. Nope. All right. So why don't we maybe educate my listeners right now as to actually why the hell you're why the on hell a, talking? Why are you on a golf by <laughs> golf podcast? We just recently spoke with, um, you know, a, a PGA professional of the year. We've spoken to collegiate all Americans. Why are you here? So, Will, I know that you are, author of four books, co-hosting three different sports podcasts, or one movie podcast, two sports podcasts. You have written for, gosh, MLB.com, Sports Illustrated, New York Magazine. I'm missing a bunch. Am I, what, what's the one that I'm missing that we got to put on your tagline so that people understand? I, I was uh, in the New York Times talk, talking about Trump on Super Bowl Sunday, oh, which uh, also was popular and made me beloved among a lot of people. Well, the one thing we're missing is that you are one of the co-founders of Deadspin, which is how... I am the co-founder. The, I am oh, the shit. founder of Deadspin. The somehow, co- somehow some, a Wikipedia thing got weird at some point. I would have loved to have had a co-founder in those early days. I would have been able to take more naps. I understand. But no, I am the actual founder. The founder of Deadspin, and if you are old enough to know what Deadspin is, obviously this has perked your ears up saying, how is this guy talking golf? Um <laughs> but but we you actually have a very interesting relationship with golf that you uh, you took under last year with Golf Magazine. They brought you in to learn the game of golf. And when when this opportunity came your way, was it something that you approached them on saying, you know, I I'd like to write about golf. I'm interested in golf. I want to give this a shot and let's document this. How did how did that whole thing come to pass? Yeah, so basically, uh, Golf Magazine, as you as your listeners probably know, went through an ownership change uh, about a year ago, about a year and a half ago, and they brought in kind of a new editorial team, and they were kind of looking for kind of fresh voices, uh, kind of name writers, and after all of those people turned them down, yeah. they got quite desperate, and so they went to me and asked if I had any ideas for them, and I mentioned to them, um, like, well... Uh, I, um, don't really play golf. And for the record, I live in the South. I live in Athens, Georgia. Uh, and you know, here it, it's a place where not playing golf. Like if someone says, if I tell someone I don't play golf, they're like, Oh, so you forgot to bring your clubs. I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't actually have clubs or actually play golf. So it, it's become like a bit of a, uh, a, uh, a, a bit of a handicap, uh, I would say, uh, living, living, living down here and not being a golfer. So I kind of told them I'm not really in, I, I don't really play golf. It's just, I, I didn't grow up with the game and, uh, and, you know, I have all sorts of, uh, as I've learned mostly, uh, mostly incorrect, uh, thoughts about class and so on about golf that are completely wrong, but were stuck in me and in, in my, in my grungy, uh, college days. Sure. And so, uh, but, um, when I talked to them, uh, so I'm like, I don't know what I could do. Uh, if you want me to do like interviews with golfers to talk about their life off the, off the, <laughs> off the links or so on. And, uh, but, uh, one thing I had is a year before, uh, I run a week, I run a weekly newsletter, uh, on Substack, And, um, I had written a newsletter about how I didn't play golf and how I always felt kind of guilty about it and how particularly difficult and the golfer's journal which i think probably a lot of your listeners know it's a very good uh, publication had asked me to write about that and it kind of got around and they remembered having reading that and they said well you know what might be fun why don't you write about golf from like an idiot's perspective and i'm like well i i resent the fact that you just consider someone to play golf an idiot but i understand where you're coming from so what we decided to do was i said listen why don't you get me together as I said, live in Athens. Give me uh, golf magazine does a it's best golf coaches of the year yeah, top issue every year. Instructors, yeah, yeah. 
and so why don't you find someone nearby uh, Georgia and I will get together with this guy every month and he will and he will track my progress he will try to coach me and turn me into a better golfer and he will try, and I and I will use this as a springboard to write a monthly column about the game and my, me being introduced to the game and me learning kind of larger issues about the game so uh, the, and so they 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 thought it was a good idea if they could find someone who could possibly suffer me for uh, for on a monthly basis so they found a man named John Tattersall who is a uh, golf instructor uh, here in Atlanta at, uh, and he was very patient with me, and uh, uh, I knew he would be patient with me because he had previously been hired to work with Charles Barkley. Oh, wow. <laughs> so said, okay, okay, I, he can handle me. Yeah. He, can, he can handle Charles Barkley. So it really turned out to be a fun thing, and so I would meet with him. I ended up meeting with him more than, than, than once a month um, to where he, uh, we started out with just basic, basics of the game. Uh, and, 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 but to me, what was fun about talking about with him is really talking about how so much of the game, not, not just the game has changed, but I think fans perception, uh, fans connection to the game seems to have changed. We talked a lot about power and about how power has become such a large part of the sport, much to the chagrin. Uh, of a lot of the fan base. And as someone that writes a lot about, for example, baseball, that, that connected with me quite a bit because baseball is very much in this constant kind of generational struggle right. between uh, why it wasn't, why can't everything be like the Whitey Herzog 1980s Cardinals watch with all these home runs and I hate the shift and so on. And I, I find it fascinating just as someone that writes about all sports to see when technology and kind of biomechanics changes a game faster than fans are ready for it to change. And I think that's something that, that to me, and you, you're more of an expert than I am, but it certainly seems like that's something that's happened to golf yeah, uh, in, it, in the last uh, in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's definitely something. In fact, the USGA just came out with a distance report. They've been tracking just how distance has affected the game over the last, oh gosh, it's been, I mean, it's happened over the last 20, 30 years, and they're really trying to figure out a way to, to make this change and or what to do about it because, you know, we, we can't get more land Um or we we're forced now to to you know acquire more land to build larger golf courses for golf balls that travel farther. So um, before we talk about your actual journey and learning the game, I want to ask you a couple of things about that year and and what you found when you started, and then what you obviously uh, uh, your conclusions were actually at the end of the year. But we have to go back and start a little bit here. So native of Mattoon, Illinois, which. Yeah, but part of Illinois that's closer to to Kentucky than Chicago, very farm country, Illinois. Of course. And now while I'm fishing for a story here, but please explain um, how much was Burger King a part of your childhood in Mattoon? You know, it's funny that you're referring to the fact that uh, Mattoon, Illinois has an original Burger King that has no connection to the national Burger King. A lot lot of people know this from law school, actually. A lot of people that went to law school, this is a case that's taught in like copyright law. I've, I've, I found out yeah. because the Burger, the Burger King in Manton, Illinois existed before the Burger King franchise. And so not, so they had this big court case because Burger King, the Burger King franchise did not know about this little, this little uh, Hamlet uh, uh, Burger King in Mattoon. So they tried to sue our Burger King out of existence. And not only did they lose our Burger King, in fact, there could be no national Burger King chain within like an hour radius of Mattoon. So growing up, I had no idea what actual Burger King was. I had no idea what the Whopper was. I had nothing because we didn't have any of that stuff. We just had uh, our local little uh, grill, greasy grill uh, with the Burger so yeah, yeah. So it's funny that that is the thing that as I've gotten older and I've met more and more lawyers in my life, that is the thing that they all know about Matt Illinois is that uh, that it is home of the original and still only Burger King. And uh, so yeah, so growing up, you know, I didn't know any better. So I did. I just thought that was the only Burger King in the world, and it turned out it was not. So how did you? Uh, you know, you went to went to uh, Illinois, and you know, obviously you've been writing probably I mean, well before you went to college, well before you got your first paid gig. But, um, you know, we can we don't have enough time to go through all your history of all the places that you've been, you know, started writing. But but I, you know, got to got to got to ask you about Deadspin. I mean, just an incredible website. And really, you know, we could say, you know, did Deadspin birth the social media sports landscape as it is today? Uh, We can go into several different directions there. But where did Deadspin start? So Deadspin happened in 2005, and it was inspired by two things. One, uh, when I went to the University of Illinois, 
I had um, I, I covered the the Illinois basketball team and football team because I'm a sports fan. I like sports, and uh, for a small town kid, uh, to me, the idea of covering the big time college basketball and college football seemed like the coolest job in the world. And you would just walk around the world girl giddy that you had such an opportunity. Right. And then I went up to the press box, saw that was not what press boxes were like. Everybody <laughs> hated it. And everyone was miserable all the time. So I thought, Oh, okay, well, I'm not going to write about sports. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I know I'm not going to do that. So the second, on the second hand, I spent five years in New York City. I moved there in two, January of 2000 and starved for about five years. But I started like some. I started a site called The Black Table with some friends of mine, and uh, and I wrote a lot for that. And people kind of like saw my work. And so Gawker Media, think of Gawker Media before it was uh, Hulk Hogan ate it, or Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel right. more specifically ate it. Um, they, uh, but they were thriving at the time, and they saw my work and liked it and asked if I wanted to do some work for them. And I realized, you know what they needed to do? They needed a sports site because I wanted to, hearkening back to that time in Champaign, I realized that the people that were covering sport to me seemed, that, A, they seemed like, so, like age-wise so different than not just the athletes they were covering, but the fans that were actually a part of this. There seemed like this massive disconnect between the people that worked in sports, whether they were media or, or players or coaches or league executives or everyone kind of involved. There was this massive disconnect the way that their sports world was and the way that the fans actually talked about sports and experienced sports. And, you know, the fans pay for all of this. So I thought, I kind of thought it would be fun to like do a site that talked about sports the way that fans talked about sports and got rid of that weird divide that existed between them. And so they said, eh, you're cheap. Give it a shot. You got a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that site became Deadspin and it broke, it, it blew up uh, much faster than I was prepared for it to. Uh, but it was, uh, to me, so much of the site was based in that kind of idea. Uh, and frankly, so much of my writing now is still based on the idea that I want to make sure sports is still fun to experience, to write about. Uh, uh, tomorrow night, I'm going to watch Illinois play Maryland uh, in college basketball, my Illini, and I am not going to be a journalist. I'm not going to be a impartial observer of, of an athletic experience. I'm right. going to be losing my mind. I'm going to be fascinated with the whole thing. And to me, I wanted to make sure that if I was going to combine two things that I deeply love, writing and sports, it would have to be something that I, I deeply enjoyed and was able to find joy out of. And so for me, that's what Deadspin was about, was kind of recapturing the joy of sports in a way that uh, hopefully uh, it seemed to catch on with people. Well, and the other thing about Deadspin that I thought was so interesting is, you know, it, it brought in almost crowdsourcing before crowdsourcing was kind of a word. You had your commenters on this blog, and you couldn't just, you know, like today you can just pop into anyone's Twitter feed and just unleash all sorts of, you know, vitriol and hatred and just off-the-wall comments. But to be a commenter on this site, you actually had to submit an email or, or I, I don't really remember exactly how that happened i got my commenter rights and what was the greatest thing is all the commenters had these just ridiculous names um mine of course was the well-known second string catcher the atlanta braves in the 80s biff pokeroba because that's just a great name but but you had all these people that contributed more to it how did that idea come to be and how did you realize that okay the fans are not only reading and consuming the content but they're actually with their creativity and their humor they're helping build the site as it you know as with all the insights and innovations with deadspin um i completely backed into it accidentally which is to say that um the site for the first i think month and a half or two months did not have comments at all and uh it became clear that they were going to have to have them because it was becoming you know they should have had them and i get it but i you know i'm a control freak about everything particularly with deadspin you know because i was 30 years old when deadspin launched and uh i had uh, been struggling for a while deadspin it was very clear to me that it was going to be kind of my big break i needed to make sure that uh, this was my uh, i needed it, I, if, I, if my career was going to work out i needed this to work out right. so i uh i held on as tight as i could and so i was very wary of having commenters so i I'll tell you what, I'll have commenters, but I am going to personally select every single person that comments on this page. So I literally put up a post on the site saying, if you'd like to be a commenter on this site, 
write me an essay, <laughs> write me a, a short essay about why you are funny and you, why you will have something to contribute to the site. And it's funny to think of now because I actually went back and looked at a lot of these emails the other day. Some of the people on there, like, like Drew McGarry, like emailed me from his advertising job in like 2000, late 2005 being like, I have a terrible advertising job and no one to talk about sports with. Please let me comment <laughs> on your site. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that, that's how it was, and 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 because, and it was great because what happened is this community of very smart, individually selected people all started talking intelligently and amusingly to each other. And to be honest, I was paying it no attention because I was so busy writing the things above the comments. Right. And so, but I think that initial decision uh, to not just let any old idiot off the street. I had seen what happened on a, on, on any random Yahoo page where, where like you put up a, on Yahoo, you could put up a picture of like a cute puppy and uh, by like comment five was first and comment 11 was how Obama was a Muslim and comment 22 was about how Bush had taken down the world trade center. And I was like, okay, my site is not doing that. We're right. having nothing to do with that. You're going to have to personally comment. And I was not thinking like, I'm going to try to create, create a community that people will be invested in. I just wanted to have a comment section. I would not personally be embarrassed of. And so I personally selected the people and then it grew and then it kind of, self-sustained. It came very organic. I started putting people that I trusted, like Drew, uh, like Matt Ufford, who was a big part of it at, at that time as well. I put them in charge of the comment thing, which just made it go bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Drew started, then the commenters, the really good commenters like Drew, started showing up above the comments and writing columns for the site. And then it became, but I think it was all of the same idea that I don't think people came to Deadspin ever to be like, wow, this is a like it was never a hot take site. Like I don't right. think ever anyone 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 had this idea. Like wow, look at the big sports news of the day. Let's see what Will Leach has to say about it. Like the whole point of the site is I'm an idiot, you're an idiot. Nobody knows any better than anybody else. If any media person acts like they do, they are feeding you a line. And so the whole idea of we're all in this together. None of us really knows anything. This is all just supposed to be fun. Uh, that was what I hope the whole site was enthused with. And I was glad that uh, uh, people caught on to that and wanted to be a part of it. If you could look back at, at one, and I know this is really challenging to do, but or maybe it's not, but if you could look back on maybe one of the stories or one of the things that could possibly define Deadspin in the glory days of when it was just, man, this is just so much fun. Like I know you were going blind trying to write everything all the time, but like if you could just look at something, if someone off the street wants you to explain, okay, what's the one of the fun weeks you had at Deadspin? What's one of the fun things that you can hang your hat on and say, yep, that was us. That's part of the sports journalism lexicon that we have a little bit of a a piece of that uh, that I'm kind of proud of. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of things that kind of jumped out a little bit for me. I liked it when the site, you know. Obviously, when you covered stories that a lot of people were afraid to cover at the time, uh, originally the site was going to be called the Ballad of Ron Mexico because this is back even before yes. the dog fighting thing of, of, uh, of with Michael Vick, where he had been treated for a, uh, a contagious disease, we'll say, and uh, and but in, a, in an order, a court filings had come out in the smoking gun where he used the name Ron Mexico as an alias, so he would stay out of the press, which I th I just found not only hilarious. But I also found it amazing that the week, you know, I think the second week after the site launched, Sports Illustrated had a cover story on Vic, and ESPN had done this long feature on him. This story had been all, like, every sports fan I knew was talking about Ron Mexico and how funny this was, and they didn't mention it. They didn't even mention it once. I was like, okay, obviously, <laughs> like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, the thing that people are talking about are the, the, the regular, uh, the, the traditional kind of way that things, these things are covered are, they're not talking about these things. And so, for me, that was, uh, uh, I, so you're always going to be covering things that sometimes, you know, push the, uh, push the line, push the limits, but I never wanted it to be a site where at the end of the day, people are like, ugh, I feel so gross. Like, you know, the way you do when you're on Twitter all day now. Right. Like I never wanted, I never wanted people to feel that way after they were on Deadspin all day. So I tried to keep kind of a cheerful attitude. I said I'm a dopey Midwesterner. Like I tried to keep it like a positive place, even when sometimes you were writing about some unpleasant things. I tried to keep it generally a positive place, and uh, uh, while still you could you, you could get down in the muck and have some fun. And so uh, to me, one of the most fun days, my old colleague, uh, my associate editor, uh, Rick Chandler, the late Rick Chandler. Rick Chandler died uh, uh, last year, uh, and Rick. Uh, there was when, if you remember, 
um, uh, what was the Barbaro? Remember the horse Barbaro? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, oh, that was yeah. the best. Yeah, Barbaro. And very sad. Listen, I like horses. No one likes to see a dead horse. The horses are dead. But to the and so remember Barbaro. He won the race and then he fell and he had to be because it's very sad. Like I don't. Right. No one was making fun of the horse. But the funny thing, what about it was someone had put up a page. Um, uh, before he'd actually died, when he was still like mending, or right. I guess you know, horses don't mend, they said, and, um, and he was, they were trying to, to I guess, fix him. What have you do to horses? I'm not a bad, but they, uh, uh, people were writing letters to Barbara, right? Yeah, <laughs> something about that just struck me and Rick as the funniest thing in the world that not only would people have this connection to an animal that is really just doing this for carrots and and, has and, no and the horse doesn't know how to read let's just say that this horse does not know how to read they're sitting like these, these these letters will not be read they will not be read to the horse if they were read to the horse the horse would not understand them <laughs> there is something uh charmingly sincere but also like very funny right. about like these people writing these these poems and all of these things to Barbara. And it became like a thing that that's been having like a lot of fun with. And, but you know, to me, that was the ideal that's been story because it was, uh, it was something that I thought that you, you get, because really what it was based in is you would have these like soft focused stories about the, the tragedy of Barbara. And listen, it is sad, but it is also, of you know, course. I mean, there are, there are thousands of horses every day that didn't just win a race on television for you that died, and no one seems to be mourning them very much. There seems something uh, very kind of silly uh, uh, about the way that the, that people were kind of reacting to it, and I think the way that like ESPN react to it, kind of like a lot of people reacted to it. So it became a perfect instant story because it could kind of mock that trope, that soft focus kind of trope, but also it was hilarious and it was it was sincere but it was also harmless like no one was getting hurt no one was being like the only thing you were you were lightly gently mocking very kind-hearted overly earnest people in a way that that, that i i felt was was warm-hearted as well and so to me i always considered that the kind of signature dead spin story of that time i think the biggest dead spin story of all time happened right after i left which was uh, probably the manti teo story which uh, of course we all know manti teo the Notre Dame football player with the fake girlfriend that was broken by dead spin it was after my uh, that was when tommy craggs was running the site it was broken after my time but uh, uh i think that was the time where you realized dead spin had gone from something that was fun and kind of uh, but small uh, it, became, it went from like the cool brooklyn indie band right to uh to play after that after that story broke yeah i always uh i always remember uh uh you're with me leather I always remember Chris Berman. Uh, yeah, that was a fun one too. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I recommend. I definitely recommend people go check out the Wikipedia page for that. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, it's still there's a lot of fun stuff on that. Yeah. One. So, um, all right, let's talk about a little bit of present day. You obviously huge. Uh, you're a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan. I actually had Joe Buck on episode 25 uh, uh, when I was first getting started. Mm -hmm. In fact, man, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and then that was kind of jumping into the fire. You don't want to you know, look like too much of an idiot when you're talking to a guy that's called the world series in the U S open and the super bowl. And was that when people were still yelling at him for, for doing his first golf stuff? They're still yelling at Joe Buck. And actually, it was, okay, they it, are. I mean, and it was really interesting is during that episode, it was actually comforting to hear him say, look, I know people don't like some of my shit and I'm okay with that. And, and, and you know, I, I do what I think is, is, is my best take. I'm not a, you know, they call me a homer, uh, you know, at all times when I'm calling a World Series game that the Cardinals are playing in. It's like, no, I'm 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 calling the World Series. But I, I just think it's hysterical how he he's very self-aware of what what his perception is um, and how he calls sports. And, and, you know, obviously they think he's bland and but golf's bland and uh, he's probably a good fit. But why do we care so much? about the the guy calling our sports i mean can't we just watch it and just take the the play-by-play -play, you know just we'll get what we get i mean why is it so damn important i don't know i we like to uh i always I always think of something the the late umpire baseball umpire ron luciano uh, oh, yeah. wrote a series of great books uh in the 80s and uh he always joked uh he had this joke about how they asked if they would ever be robot umpires, if they would ever have a machine that would call balls and strikes or call outs. And he said, you know, uh, if they find a machine that calls balls and strikes, the players, when it makes a call that goes against them, will beat it to death with the <laughs> bat. <laughs> because we want uh, – uh, when sports – one of the things I love about sports 
is it gets out emotions that are otherwise unacceptable in daily life. If I, uh, when I think of things that make me jump up and just start screaming, it's basically sports and like a spider, you know? Right. So like, like for me, sports, uh, like I'm a, if you were to meet me in regular everyday life, I mean, I talk fast clearly, but other than that, I'm like a pretty regular guy. Like I'm not, I, I don't get too excited. I don't get too angry. I don't get too sad. I know I'm a, I'm a regular measured Midwestern dude. Uh, but when I'm watching a sporting event, I'm a lunatic. And to me, that's what sports is for. And so sports is for uh, uh, basically it's uh, and sometimes it can go too far in this direction, but generally speaking, it's a it's a place where you can kind of have a safe sort of tribalism, and you can and uh, you can you can sit next to someone with whom you have absolutely nothing in common uh, emotionally, personally, politically across the board. But if you are rooting for the same team as them, uh, uh, you're best friends, and you guys can scream like crazy the entire time. And so broadcasters, just like referees, are kind of there to be yelled at. It's funny. One of the things that's kind of interesting, I always think of college basketball, when Billy Packer used to call the Final Four, and when Joe Morgan used to call uh, the baseball game, they were the most hated guys. People despised them. So then they left, and they were replaced with the most boring people in the world, and the games just aren't as much fun. (laughs) Like, I do think there is value in having – in the same way that, like, I feel like this as a media member, I feel like this is part of the job as the press. I actually feel like it's part of our social utility that, that the press provides. It's for people to get out their frustrations and anger with. Where the refs you yell at? That's kind of what broadcasters are. So I feel like, you know, Joe Buck, I actually like Joe Buck. I know Joe Buck. I, I, I think he is a funny person. I think he has an excellent perspective on his place in the sports yes. universe. And that is not something that particularly with people of that high profile of a job that's not something they usually have bob costas does not have that bob costas believes that when he's on like broadcast he's like the voice of god and you should listen to me joe buck does not do that joe buck is like i broadcast baseball games and i'm kind of a dork and i and, and i know you all think i suck and that's okay and i feel like uh, that is that is correct <laughs> but it is also i think the very uh a very healthy attitude for someone uh, in his position to have yeah, um, that's well said because I kind of feel the same way. I, I think we would, you know, obviously you're probably aware that uh, CBS got rid of uh, um, uh, Gary McCord and they got rid of um, a couple other, uh, I'm trying to remember who they got rid of. They got rid of McCord and I and obviously don't have Faraday anymore and obviously uh, Fer- or McCord was removed from the Masters broadcast because he, I'm pretty sure you're aware of this, but back in the 80s he referred to the Greens and Augusta National as being bikini waxed that they were so fast, yeah. and yeah, he was never brought back there. But um, I agree. I think there should be more personality in the way golf is called. Uh, obviously, there's the way to respect the game and all that fun stuff that that you have to keep in mind. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your journey in golf. So you start with these lessons <laughs> with John Tattersall, and you start writing these columns. Um, did you get to a point where you actually started to enjoy the game of golf? I, I started to respect it more. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think the game is for me. Uh, if, and I don't say that because and that's not a problem with the game. That's a problem with me. Uh, I, I am, uh, as you can clearly tell, listening to this, I'm not a laid back person. Like I, <laughs> I'm an active person. Like I, I talk fast. I think fast. I write fast. I, uh, I, I, I actually feel like I'm talking at normal speed. It's just the rest of you are listening too slowly. There you go. Uh, but, uh, I think that uh, golf requires a patience and a long-term commitment that I am unable to give it. Uh, but what it has done, uh, it, what doing those lessons, and then, because what we kind of did is we did all these lessons. I went to the BMW Championships with him uh, in uh, Chicago. Uh, I, I played at the, uh, at the course where, uh, at, the, at, at, the, at the Country Club of the South, uh, in suburban Atlanta, which I discovered when I was there, is the place where Lisa Left Eye Lopez burnt down Andre Rison's house back in the 90s. Fun, I discovered fun, that. Fun uh, fact. Fun fact. Yeah, part of my journey. Part of my journey. Um, but so I, I don't. I got a little bit better. But the thing about getting a little bit better at golf is it doesn't matter if you're like, okay, I'm just going to get a lot better or I'm going to like really focus on this. And it really made me appreciate it. One of the things that we did at, after he kind of, he did all of this and I finally went and played a, a half round with him and bless his heart. Like he was so patient with me in a way that he should not have been. Cause he spent a lot of time teaching me things 
and uh, then watched me go out in the course and not do any of the things that he had taught me. And But then to go out and play with friends of mine here in Athens. I played at the Athens Country Club with uh, friends, that, friends of mine that read uh, the Golf Magazine column every month and enjoyed it. And it, we, we wanted to close the year journey by actually playing with him. And one of the things that really kind of blew me away, you know, these guys are, you know, they're duffers. You know, they play... They're, they're country. They're members of the country club, so they play pretty regularly. But you know, they're they're not tour. Pro, they're not they're not local pros. They they don't play any brands. They just they 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 have an easier recollection of their handicap than I do when asked. But otherwise, you know, they're not. You know, they're not. Uh, they're casual golfers. They do it the, for the reason that everybody does it to just get away for a little bit and get some peace of quiet and drink a couple beers and chill out. And playing with them, I have to tell you. Watching them play, they are so good. <laughs> Not to be fair, they're so good just compared to me, but it gave me a larger appreciation. To me, this is what where the journey ultimately landed, was to realize that uh, you, reader, and you, listener, that you're probably, you get out there and you get frustrated and you, and you, and you hook it here and, you're, and you had a bad round here and you get frustrated. Just, just know that to the average person, what you are doing is magic like it is magic <laughs> a guy that's like apparently according to the rules of golf and the way you score it is not actually very good at golf is able to hit the boo, that ball just goes flying straight and he's able to 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 to, to pitch and butt and do all of these things that i am horrible at and really only kind of understand uh to me speaks to i had a professional coach go into detail with me on so many things and I practiced and I tried to get better and I would watch these guys and they were just so good and they're not good. Right. <laughs> and to me, that is, that is what I really grew to appreciate is, uh, that guy that I, I got plenty of friends. I live in Athens, Georgia. I got plenty of friends that go golfing, but that guy that just golfs every once in a while and just to get away from his family and to, or get away from her family or just to get the, get just to get out for a little bit and chill out a little bit. Uh, they probably don't, aren't worried about their score. They'll take a free shot here. There's no big deal. We're all just having fun. They're so good. And I feel like that is not appreciated by someone that just plays golf every once in a while, but loves the game and has put in enough time to improve at it. You are to someone that doesn't play and is not dedicated to the game. It is what they do just blows me away i have so much there's a guy in that i that, that is his uh one of the guys i played with at, at the athens country club he's his son is in my my eight-year-old class at school and he's just a regular everyday golfer but every single time i see him now i'm like oh my god there goes that awesome golfer right and he's not he's just a regular guy but i think i think so that's something that i think everyone should keep in mind what they do is really, really impressive, even if it doesn't feel that way. All right, so if you got knocked on your ass by playing with your local buddies and the hackers around the club, what was it like when you were at that PGA Tour event and you're seeing the best in the world? Did you feel like you were just like, like on a foreign planet? Uh, well, no, to me, the thing that kind of blew me away by that was um, how, you know, I've covered Super Bowls, I've been to the Olympics, I've been to the World Series, I've covered the Final Four, I've been to, you know, you name a massive sporting event, and I've covered it. And um, But that was the first time I'd gone to, you know, it's not a major, but it's a you know, championship, that's a big deal, yeah. that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a big term. And the, the, the closeness that you have to the actual players, really, like I tripped Jim Furyk, I didn't mean to, I didn't even know it was Jim Furyk. I had to look him up on Wikipedia after. I was like, holy cow, that was Jim Furyk. That guy's good. He was very nice about it. Yeah. But uh, uh, it's to me, I don't even think he was playing. I don't know if he was playing. Or I don't know what he was. But the point is that, like, if I go to cover, never minding the Super Bowl, but if I go cover an exhibition game between the Patriots and the Lions in mid-August that no one's there, I'm not coming within 300 yards of Tom Brady. Right. But if I go to a professional, if I go to a golf game, they're all right there and not just right there to where I can, where I can accidentally trip them, but right there, there are right on top of me. Every single shot that I, that I put together, that, 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 that I do, there's everyone staring at me, never minding all the cameras, but everyone's right on top of me. And I had never realized that until I was there, 
how much everyone is just right on top of you as you're swinging. And I, I didn't really understand. One of the things I talked with John Tennersall about was, you know, he, he got me in a while, you know, we'd go in the driving range and we'd, and I, he's got, you know, he's got, uh, he's part of a fusion ATL, which is the name of, uh, of his, his, his coaching clinic and coaching company. They have that, one of those incredible biometric things where they put all these cords on me yeah, and I yeah. can whack balls at night. It's really incredible, but and I start. I got a lot better at that, and then I got in the driving range. I was doing really well, and I was like, "Wow, golf is easy! I got this thing licked." What's everybody talking about? And then the minute I got on the actual course, and he was looking at me, and the and the actual shots counted, I was like, "Oh my god, golf is really hard!" And I messed up every shot, and I completely freaked out. And so it makes you realize that this. I have always thought of golf as this intensely personal, almost private game, and it totally isn't and that is one of my major misconceptions i had about the game that i understand now and has has, has developed me a much larger respect for people to do it not just on uh, the highest level but even on on the basic level to go out with your friends and have them looking at you when you take a shot and have them give you crap when you when you mess it up i mean it's it's an entirely different experience you have so many things you have to keep in mind when you're doing a shot you have to keep consistent you have to all these things that john taught me and the minute he was looking at me and the score counted i forgot not all of them. Right. <laughs> and I can't, it, to me, it, it's really kind of a remarkable thing that I did not understand. <laughs> now, when you were there, um, did you, I'm sure as a writer, the, the ideas are kind of constantly percolating in your brain about, oh, there's this angle, there's that angle. Um, did you think of just an interesting article or a perspective about maybe how you would change the, the fan experience for a PGA Tour event or how you would change the broadcast of a PGA tour event that would be more suitable to the layman or the casual fan or someone that's just clicking through the channels and like, Oh, here's golf. Let me see what this is for about 15 minutes. Did you have any ideas that came to your mind after being around the game and around the PGA tour, even for just that one afternoon? I do think that you don't get a sense when you watch on television. I'm not watch golf on television. I, and I see them walk through the crowds, but it always feels like, the crowd's always the crowd always feels like extras. They're like, you know, they're the people in the background of the shot as right. Tiger Woods goes to sign his car and so on. But they're not. And there's something about there's something artificial about the way that to me, that golf is covered on television. It does it's it doesn't feel personal. It's too big. It, the scope is too large. They're almost, and I get it. You know, you want to watch where the ball the ball goes a long way, and you want to be able to get the scope of where it's going, where it is. But to me, what's so much more interesting is that point of contact and what it's like to have. I feel like there should be more. And I understand so much of golf is focused on the players. The players don't want to think about the fans. Uh, the fans have to be quiet. I understand that. But I feel like you can get a better idea of what it's actually like, not only to be at to be there, but what it feels like to actually hit the ball with all those people on top of you. It, uh, I feel like it needs more of a cinema verite <laughs> vibe uh, than uh, it feels. If I mean, honestly, when I'm watching a golf event, I feel like it's not all that different than watching someone play Golden Tee. Okay, and, um, I know what you're, and, I know, you're just and, talking about the visual interpretation. It's just the way it's yes, yeah of the game. They it seem like they feels, seem like they're protected out there. Yeah, they do, and they're not, <laughs> and they're not, and and uh, that's something I did not realize until I was actually there. That uh, so if, I don't know if that would liven it up. I, I'm sure the players would hate it, <laughs> but I do think there is something to the idea of getting across the drama of. When you're watching a guy hit a golf ball, there's just one guy, and you're looking at him be that one guy. But there are people everywhere, and he had to walk through all of them. She had to walk through all of them to get to the ball. And I just feel like that does get lost a little bit in a, in, in a way that if you could somehow convey that in a dramatic kind of urgent way – uh, I, I, I think it would, it would, uh, I would find it a little bit more riveting because it would get across a way, not just the human drama, but I think, you know, now it, when you watch someone, it, it feels like the, the, the story is man versus self or woman versus self. Right. But for me, what's most more fascinating is it's not, they're not there by themselves and they're not, uh, they, there's someone not only is, are the fans watching, but they've got someone they've got a partner that, that they're going with all day. And it just feels like the actual, uh, it feels like golf is televised as a series of individual shots 
rather than a journey that lasts all day. And um, uh, I, I personally feel like the journey that lasts all day is, is kind of a more compelling story. Interesting. Yeah, there's just so many golfers out there. And actually, it's one of those, I think I've spoken to uh, to other people in, in golf media where, you know, it's one of those rare sports where, well, maybe it's the only sport. There's there's Other sports have just one ball. And we have to focus, golf has to focus on multiple players, multiple golf balls. So it has to be more of a story with all different, you know, cutting from this hole to that hole. And, but no, I totally, I totally agree. It'd be nice to get a little bit closer. What um, we're talking about. Okay. So we're talking about the players. Let me ask you this one about just sports, today's athletes, whether it's golf or baseball, um, do they owe the fans more? Do you feel that the relationship with, with, athletes and fans is in a good spot do they need to get closer are they getting too close with social media how do you feel about the relationship of fans and athletes you know it's funny i i'm uh, i'm doing a cover story for new york magazine on kevin durant and i just last week uh before the super bowl i was in new york and i was actually interviewing durant uh in his uh perhaps not so unsurprisingly uh, beautiful high-rise <laughs> apartment in uh in 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 chelsea new york and he talked a lot about almost the obligations that you have now as that level of athlete to show more of yourself. Uh, and uh, in a way that not only lets the fans see more, but benefits you professionally, makes your on-court life easier. We were kind of contrasting a little bit between like him and say Michael Jordan, where Michael Jordan could, and I think Tiger Woods for a long time, could be this vague, generic, all things to all people. And that's just impossible. Now you just can't, you can't be that. You ha- People demand more. And if you don't give them more, they think that you're a jerk. <laughs> and, and I have to say, as a private person myself, like I'm talking to you now, we're having fun. But like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna open up my soul to you. I, I, I'm, uh, I, 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 to me, you know, I'm, uh, I, I feel like my professional life and my private life are mostly separate, and, um, and I, I would feel very uncomfortable with that. But that's not really an option now uh, for a lot of athletes, particularly on the scale of a Kevin Durant. And uh, I find that we actually talked, we had talked about three or four days after Kobe Bryant had died. And one of the things he talked about was like, you know, after Kobe retired, it felt like he finally figured out who he was a little bit and figured out that, oh, and he could show people that in a way that was more comfortable for him. And he said, that's something that I'm working on, something I'm trying to get better at. And I do feel like it's a lot, man. Like it's a lot to, uh, for athletes, particularly when they're so young. Like I'm 44 years old and I'm not even close to figuring this out. I can't imagine how hard it is for like a 20-year-old with millions of people desperately, see what, desperately reacting to every like that you give on Instagram. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's different. It's something that's changed a lot, uh, in the last decade. Um, I do think fans have a, uh, unhealthy, um, an unhealthy attitude about athletes. But to be honest, I think we have an unhealthy attitude about all of this. That is part of the fun. Like for crying out loud, this does not actually matter. These four, watching uh, who wins the Masters does not actually affect my life at all, except it totally does when I'm watching it. Right? Like that. Like to me, like I said, I'm, I'm going to watch this. I, I, my Illini are in first place in college and in, in the Big Ten right now, and they're going to play Maryland on Friday on Friday night, and I'm going to lose my mind at that game. Now, if you take a step back from it, I am a 44 year old man yelling at. 19 unpaid 19 and 20 year olds running around in their pajamas for two hours for my amusement. And my, my happiness level is almost entirely determined by how an arbitrary score uh, ends up at the end of the game. Uh, it's irrational. It's insane. It is emotional. I, I've always joked that one of the dumbest things I've tried to do in my career is try to uh, try to attach logic and rationality to a field where it is by nature rejected. <laughs> and so, uh, for, so for me, you know, it, it, we do have an unhealthy relationship with our athletes, but we have an unhealthy relationship with sports because if we had a healthy relationship with sports, we probably would only pay passing attention to it, but we don't because they're awesome. And therefore we get emotionally invested. And as I said, kind of get more, uh, get a lot of unhealthy emotions out through something that really ultimately doesn't matter that much, which 
I guess that's maybe the most healthy thing about it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, uh, no, I, no I, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And, and like another thing about like with Tiger, like Tiger's been through so much in different, you know, scandals and different, um, and, and a lot of players have been through that, whether it's, it, I mean, we can go down the list, in, not just in golf, but in other sports as well. And, you know, when people ask me about Tiger, I'm like, I, I'm, I don't know Tiger. I'm never probably going to know Tiger. I may interview him one day, but I don't think we're going to be friends. I only know Tiger by the fact that he's one of the greatest golfers of all time. So I can appreciate what he does in his profession on the course or on the court or on the diamond or on the gridiron, wherever you want to call it. I can just enjoy it in that little capsule. I don't base it on what kind of a person they are because you don't know what kind of person they are. But I also find it just fascinating that people look at that and that's how they determine who they're going to root for. Yeah, and to me, you know, it's ultimately okay, right? Like, I feel like it's ultimately okay. And, you know, I think about, you'd think we would have learned this lesson in a lot of ways um, over and over and over the idea. I like, I have kids now, you know, and I, um, I want them to love sports because it's something that we can do together. And it's something we care about. It's something you can be connected with. I have season tickets to Georgia basketball and Georgia football here. And my kid's school is right across from the athletic facility. So like sports is it's something they're connected to here, but I don't want them like the Kirby smart is not their hero. Um, Jake Fromm was not their hero right. and Anthony Edwards is not their hero. They are people that, they can cheer for wholeheartedly because I really feel like your fandom is yours. I always think this, this is what really frustrates me as a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I feel like the ownership group of the Cardinals believe that the reason the Cardinals are successful is because of them. And that's not true. They are temporary stewards of a, what I would argue is a public trust in, uh, in, in, in 60 years. Uh, I'm probably be dead in 60 years, 40 years. Uh, no one probably dead in 40, but whatever, let's call it 40. Um, in 40 years, the owners are probably not going to be there anymore. The players aren't going to be caring about the Cardinals anymore. Uh, the manager is not going to be there. They could be in a different stadium entirely. Everything could be different about that place, except for me. I'm still there, and the Cardinals fans are still there. And I feel like when people work in this, comes back to working in sports thing. When people work in sports, I feel like they think that they are actually the ones that make all of this and they're not. And so I argue that if you're a fan of a team, this came up a lot. Uh, this comes up a lot when like, for example, in baseball, if you're a Yankees fan, how can you cheer for all world as Chapman? If you're an Astros fan, how can you cheer for Roberto Asuna? If you're a Chiefs fan, how do you uh, cheer for Tyreek Hill and some people who have been involved in some bad stuff? Uh, uh, or, you know, if you're an owner, if you're a Patriots fan, how can be involved with Bob Kraft? Right. You know, all sorts of the things invo involved with that. Um, and to me, you're not rooting for Bob Kraft, and you're not rooting for Tyreek Hill, and you're not rooting for Boris Chapman. You are rooting for this thing that you have created called the Yankees that makes your life happier when they win and when and makes them unhappy with their lose. Because logically speaking, you're rooting for a corporation, but you're not. You're rooting <laughs> for this thing that means something to you that you have created. And so to me, that's the healthiest attitude. That's why I kind of try to get across to my kids. Root for Georgia. It's cool. if you uh, But like we don't get autographs. We don't do autographs. We don't. We, we try not to like worship the athletes or hate the athletes on the other team. We're rooting for our team to be. We're rooting that when we're rooting for our team to win. What we're really rooting for is for us to have a brief uh, uh, flush of endorphins of happiness in a world that could otherwise be quite cruel. Uh, so for me, uh, that's what sports provides, and uh, I feel like that's the best attitude to have about when you're watching. So your kids aren't going to be able to score an autograph when dad's interviewing some big star, their favorite player. Is that what you're saying? Oh, what, we don't what, do autographs what, around here. What kind of a dad are you? I mean, get out of here with that. You, you're not even, nothing? No there is no, there is oh. no, there is no way I lose respect more for a journalist than when they take a selfie with whoever they're interviewing. Oh, you are man. there to do a, they are, they are not better than you. They are not worse than you. They are there to do a job just like you are doing a job. And I, I feel like if, any sort of journalist that, uh, what I think a bane of journalism, of, of any kind of journalism, but I think sports journalism, sports journalism and like entertainment journalism both have this problem. Uh, this kind of obsession with celebrity and the idea that like uh, that uh, it was funny when I left Durant uh, the other day, he's like, you want a picture? And I was like, no, are people always asking you for pictures when they're done with interviews with you? 
And he's like, yeah, I just assumed you did. I was like, you're dealing with a bunch of shitty, sorry, crappy journalists. And, uh, cause I mean, that's not that my job is to, is to, is to interview him and tell his story uh, and my interpretation of that story, how it gets into a, uh, into the large universe as I understand. Hey, what was his reaction when you said that? I was just curious. He, he laughed. He laughed. I think he, I mean, I, I don't think he, I don't, I don't know if he cared enough to respect me anymore, <laughs> but, but anymore it gave him or pause, less. but it gave but him I, pause. It did give him pause. And I, it bothered me that it gave him pause because, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I, to me, uh, my job by interviewing him or doing an interview, uh, for a big story like that is not to say, Hey guys, Look who I interviewed. Check out my Instagram stories. I'm with KD. Like to me, I lose credibility of someone telling the story. It becomes something that I'm selling. It becomes something that I'm peddling. I'm there to tell the story. If I tell the story correctly, hopefully people will like it and they'll click on it and they'll buy it. But like the, to me, it's artificial otherwise. This is why even it harks back to Deadspin. Like in the early days of that, the entire time I did Deadspin, I specifically requested never to be told how much traffic any story was getting or how much the site was getting. I just told, I said, listen, if we're not getting enough hits, we'll just stop it. Right. <laughs> but like, don't make me, don't make me like go like, oh, what's going to get a big traffic story for us today? Right. And uh, obviously I lost that battle. Yeah, I was just going to say because like, yeah, you're that, right. That's I, the I, way the world works. Yeah. But I, honestly, I say this all the time, but like, to me, this is why, like, I talked about how bad Twitter is for me. Like Twitter is actually an incredible communication device. If I have a thought, I can type it into a box and hit send, and everyone in the world can see it in a half a second. Like that's a what an incredible device. The problem is we've attached numbers to it, and it's like, oh, how many people liked it? How many people saw it? How did I do? Did I do okay? And it's turned what should just be an incredible communications device into like a dick measuring contest. And uh, and I and I feel kind of obliged with people. Like it's weird. Like I'm not on Twitter very much. I usually I kind of just use Twitter to like promote things that I've written. Right. And it's very strange to me because. I mean, people act, you know, we don't get like a nickel when you get a like, like you don't, if we did, I would understand kind of people's thirst for this. But I wonder if it's because I start, because I started dead, when I was kind of so in the early days of the internet, I, there's only a certain level of attention that I want. <laughs> and above that is too much attention. And uh, so I don't have that endorphin rush to like, notice me, notice me, notice me the way that it seems to be the currency of the time now. Uh, but uh, uh, certainly for me, my job is uh, my job. I, I, and maybe I'll end up starving and broke <laughs> because of this attitude, but uh, well, it's I, certainly the only way. I can do it. Yeah. And, and not to cut you off, but I, I, I feel the same way. I look at things and, and, like on Instagram, there's a lot of, you know, golf is really popular on Instagram. There's all sorts of people posting pictures from, um, you know, uh, you know, girls in yoga pants hitting golf balls where you can clearly see that they are not golfers. And then you get like 30, 40,000 likes on that, on that image. And I'm thinking just because people are liking that, it doesn't mean there's any sort of a transaction or a fi There's no financial transaction necessarily taking place. I mean, sure, if they're sponsored by some sort of a clothing company, maybe some, someone's going to buy it. But, hey, we're, we're just liking that picture because, well, maybe this woman has, you know, a, a nice figure. And that's that's about the extent of it. And then a nanosecond later, we've swiped up and we're never going to look at that again. It, it's just a bunch of series. Everything's an endorphin rush. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's yeah. an endorphin rush. And whatever, I, I get it. Like, modern life is lonely, man. Like, it's hard. We're all around our screens all the time, and we're not really talking to each other that much anymore. And 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 for crying out loud, I don't remember the last time I saw my phone ring and didn't go, ugh, just text me, just email me. Like, we, we, we are all kind of lonely in our own ways. So I get it. You know, you're looking. We're all kind of reaching out and trying to get some sort of wide connection. But it is, it's making us insane. Seen. And I mean, you, you see it obviously with the presidential election, but you see it in almost every aspect of modern life. The idea that like people that will agree with it with, with another person on 99.5% of the things in the world will murder them over that 0.5 that they don't. Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's a bizarre, it's, it's, it's something that it's why it feels like, uh, and I feel like so much of that is because we're, we're lonely and we're thirsting for something. I know this has gotten weirdly philosophical. Yeah. We've gone in a weird direction here, but that's a large part. Yeah. We've gone in a weird direction. That's okay. Well, we're good. We're good. <laughs> so I want to close this out because you have several different outlets, uh, where you, you write your articles, you have your podcast, but, uh, your movie 
podcast, uh, Grierson and Leach, or is it Leach and Grierson? Uh, Grierson and Leach. Grierson Grierson Leach. Leach. I let him go first. I understand. Well, you're a good guy. Uh, Grierson and Leach. So, best sports movies. That was one of your articles, and uh, obviously top 50. Caddyshack and Tin Cup are in the 23 and 24 spots. So, talk to me a little bit about Caddyshack and Tin Cup. How many times you've seen them? Kind of give me the thought process, if you can, about where they, uh, you know, I'm not sure how detailed you want to get, but but where did they rank? Or Well, we know where they rank, but tell me a little bit how they got to those rankings and your thoughts when you watch those movies. Because, obviously, you start talking golf movies, those are the two that really come up. There's a couple other ones, Happy Gilmore, of course. But um, when you're sitting down making that list, uh, how, how do you come to those numbers? I'm just curious your thought process. You know, I hosted a show for Sports Illustrated when they had their streaming uh, channel, which is SI at the movies. We would do like a different classic sports movie and have like a discussion of it. And I watched Caddyshack for it. Now, I should be upfront with you. I have a serious Chevy Chase aversion. You should know that. <laughs> you should know that straight up. So there's a problem already I have with Caddyshack. I don't like Fletch, for example. Like Chevy Chase makes the skin on my, the hair on my back of my neck crawl. So keep that in mind as a institutional bias that we are dealing okay. with here. Uh, but uh, I would say that um, uh, uh, to me, Caddyshack is a series of absolutely classic, incredible, uh, uh, wonderful moments uh, that will have, have etched their place in American popular culture for, that will outlive all of us, surrounded by a lot of people sitting around uh, kind of uh, desperately. Uh, uh, it's a little bit too hangdog and ramshackle for me. It's probably the best way to put it. The best parts are so wonderful, but like when you sit down and watch the movie start to finish, I kind of feel like uh, um, th- there's a lot of stuff that you fast forward <laughs> would sure. be the best way to put it. Uh, uh, Tin Cup, I have to say, I like Tin Cup a lot and uh, I've always enjoyed Tin Cup because Tin Cup to me is uh, to me, it speaks to something inherent about not just sports, but actually life, which is uh, at a certain level, where do you make that decision of uh, sticking true to what you truly believe and who you truly are in the face of what may necessarily not be good for you? <laughs> and that's, to me, that's, that's, that's the beauty of the ending of Pin Cup. It is triumphant in failure and triumphant in in stubbornness and pigheadedness. And uh, I admire that as a stubborn and pigheaded person. <laughs> I've always kind of enjoyed that about Tin Cup. And so I, I always liked that movie. Uh, and uh, I always felt like that movie was a, I feel like when it came out, it was almost, it was almost a little unappreciated when it was in theaters. I feel like it's found its audience in a way. I'll put, I'll put it this way. I, 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 this may be blasphemy. I would sit down and watch, Tin cup in a second right now. Uh, it would be more difficult. I w- would, however, sit down and watch a ten-minute YouTube clip of the best parts of Caddyshack. <laughs> but I might not sit yep. and watch the movie all ahead straight forward. Yep, that's very fair. Um, final one I want to ask you: What is what's most exciting you right now about sports? I mean, twenty twenty. There's so many different things coming up. As far as you know, we obviously just had a great Super Bowl and. And we're going to get into the, the summer golf season. You mentioned you watch golf on, on TV. So what are let's just keep it to golf since it is kind of a golf podcast. Or it was until about an hour ago. It was until I got on. I went to, you just blew um, it. Um, yeah. What, uh, what are you excited? What, what excites you about golf? To passively watch, write about, you know, what are you looking forward to in 2020? You got the Ryder Cup this year. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to throw it. You got the Masters coming up. I mean, give, give me, if someone's going to hear Will Leach right now, what excites you about golf? I mean, I live in Georgia, so like you know, this place shuts down on Masters weekend, and right. uh, a really kind of love. I've never been, and I have to say, um, I'll put it this way: uh, I've never been, but I've I've been offered before. Here is the best story I can tell you. Here's the okay. best story I can tell you about about how much I've changed in golf on this. Um, my father-in-law uh, is a member of Shinnecock. Oh dear, God. he's a member of Shinnecock. Uh, and he, uh, he's a, and he's a nice man, but he knows, and he obviously loves golf and he, uh, plays all the time. And he, five, nine, eight, nine years ago, he invited me to go play with him at Shinnecock. Now I told him, I said, now, and it's funny because my mindset in this was, um, as a baseball fan, if someone that did not care about baseball 
They said, hey, you want to go play baseball at, at Wrigley Field? I would uh, hope that they would show enough respect to my game that they would turn that down because it would be blaspheme for someone that doesn't love baseball to go be sacrosanct on the, the hallowed Wrigley Field. And I said, as a Cardinals fan. So I said to Roberts, I said, thank you very much for the offer. That is very kind. Uh, but I do feel like my uh, uh, not only terrible golf, uh, golf skills, but even my antipathy to the game, uh, it would be defiling of something that so many people revere and so many people care about. So I feel like I owe it to the game that you love and the course that you play on uh, not to play, but thank you very much. So I thought when I got to Athens and I had all these friends that were golfers, I would tell this story and they would be like, oh man, thanks for respecting our game. What a good guy you are. You know what? You don't like golf, but we love that you appreciate golf. That is not what happened. They all said, you're a moron. Why didn't you play should you idiot. So uh, I will say uh, I've been offered to go to the Masters. I've been offered to play Shinnecock. Uh, 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 I've not been offered to play Shinnecock since I've done the golf lessons. Uh, and I and this will be the first year that the Masters will happen since I did the column. If someone this year, if I get an invitation to go to the Masters, I will go. I will go this year and look. Oh wow, how magnanimous! I was, just, I was just about to, to say. go to the master. I understand what you're saying, but to me, that's the golf evolution. To me, for me, is uh, uh, to get excited about. Uh, I, I I understand the context to all of this better than I did in the past. In a way that I'm excited now. I'm excited. I'm excited that in, in the same way that is fun for me when everyone fills up their tournament brackets or everyone all sits around the television at the Super Bowl or you know everyone uh, uh, whatever sports thing that we can all do collectively. Uh, even now, it's something that I appreciate in golf in a way that I didn't before. So I'm gonna. I cannot wait for the Masters this year, and I'm saying that for the first time in my life. Well, I, I feel like we've accomplished a lot of things uh, today, and uh, we, we've made some progress. And phone lines are phone lines are open, folks. Will Leach will accept Masters tickets. You heard it here first. So. <laughs> I will. I will. You know what? If if you, uh, I will deign to say sure to Masters tickets. Twist his arm. Well, uh, Will, this was. Uh, this was a lightning fast episode that lasted an hour because you talk so insanely fast, but, uh, it was, it was great. It was great to catch up, uh, man, 15 years or so after, uh, I first learned about, uh, Deadspin and I'm, I'm talking to the founder. So it's been a lot of fun. I hope we can uh, do it again soon. And, uh, thanks for coming by the back of the range. Be safe. Be- and there you have it. Special thanks to Will Leach for joining us this week. That was a fun experiment. We may need to have him back on the podcast. So feel free to leave reviews in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Remember, everything is available at thebackoftherange.com. We will see you again next week for another episode here at The Back of the Range.